So let's go into your next patient. Okay, the next patient is, she is 57, who I saw about four years ago for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. She presented how most people do physical exam, was found to have a high white count. And at that point, we didn't do very much. She was ZAP70 negative, CD38 negative. Her fish studies at that point were all normal. So I thought she'd have a relatively indolent course. And unfortunately, that did not happen. About a year to a year and a half later, she started to develop a significant anemia, hemoglobins into the sixes, and her white count was dramatically rising. We did a marrow. Her marrow was 90% cellular with COL cells, and she was also developing diffuse adenopathy. We then went on to treat her with fludarabine and rituxin for five cycles. She did quite well. Her counts normalized. She tolerated it very well. Adenopathy went away, and we then sat tight on her. She did well for approximately two years' time, and again, she started to develop increasing adenopathy, increasing white count, and worsening anemia. At that point, she sought second opinions, and we repeated her fish studies, and her fish studies showed that she had the development of a 17P, which this is a woman who's quite educated, who's read quite a bit, who's seen different doctors, and she was quite scared about this. So at that point, she was evaluated both for chemotherapy and the concept of an allogeneic stem cell transplant was brought up. She was not at all interested at that point, so we decided to treat her, and she was treated with bendamustine and rituxin. Again, she tolerated this extraordinarily well. Really, after 10 days, her counts normalized. She had no symptoms. Adenopathy went away. She recently finished her sixth cycle, and right now she's just being followed. John, any impressions having met her? Yeah, I think one of the things, and Neil and I talked about this, and it's really something that came through our discussions with all of these patients to varying degrees, but I think was most striking with this lady, is, you know, I obviously am often a referral physician and see patients often in second opinion. And, you know, one of the things that struck me really with all of Neil's patients, but this one in particular, was really the level the impressive level of trust and the great relationship that patients have with Neil. And obviously, I think that's reflective of many community oncologists in practice. And where this came out so much in light with this lady is that she got treated. She wasn't excited about hearing or getting an allogeneic stem cell transplant. But in the hemalignancies, there are so many scenarios where patients get their induction treatment or their standard treatment, whatever it is, and then they're sent for a transplant consultation or transplant is being entertained as an option. And the vital role that the primary oncologist has in all of this in that, you know, this was a lady who was sent to the transplanter who very, you know, I think reasonably in some people's eyes was very supportive of doing a transplant saying, you know, you have a 17P deletion, you have relapse CLL, you're a young patient, the right thing to do there in that person's mind, and I think many people's mind would be to go ahead and do an allogeneic transplant. On the other hand, the patient really turned to Neil and wanted his opinion. And I think, obviously, this is an open question as to whether or not she needs an allogeneic transplant. But Neil and I were just commenting that so much of her opinion, you know, I think this lady would do whatever Neil told her to do because she had so much faith in him. And I agree with him. And one of the things that came through during the day was how much our kind of practice styles, in my mind, are similar and being relatively conservative in how we approach patients. But 
you know, the fact of the matter is it's really an awesome responsibility because this lady, if he said, go get a transplant, as much as she didn't want to do it, she would go do it because she has faith in him. And I think, you know, it's remarkable and it's something maybe you don't recognize in your day-to-day practice, but when you come in and see somebody else's practice as an outsider, you notice it. So that's the thing that struck me the most about her. I mean, I think the issue of she's clearly responding well to what she's getting. She's in good shape. She looks well, but she's got the 17P deletion. And I think the question of taking somebody who feels well and pushing them to get an aloe transplant when they're doing pretty well, knowing that they may not continue to do well, you know, it's a tough choice and it's a tough dilemma. And I think a lot when you think about it is on our shoulders as physicians to guide our patients in the right direction. So, Neil, what went into your initial decision to use FR as opposed to FCR? Well, we talked about that a bunch. One is she actually sought another opinion that suggested FR. Now, I've gone and used both regimens, and when I try to put it together, I do believe that the FCR is substantially more toxic and more side effects. In her in particular, if she had side effects or substantial side effects, she would have stopped treatment. She would have been done. So she had to, had to, had to have tolerated this. If she got sick, if she wound up in the hospital, if she lost her hair, which is uncommon but certainly possible we would have been in big trouble. On a more global level, although FCR is a very popular regimen, I'm not completely convinced you're benefiting all patients. I know you're giving them more side effects. I'm not sure you're making them live longer. And we'll use it in people who I think I need a response or a quick response, but I don't use it in everybody. What is her family situation and lifestyle? She's married. She has three children. We've talked about her family extensively during this whole time. She was also having a lot of stress with her older son. He was dropping out of high school. He was involved in all kinds of not-so-good things. So she was having stress both at home and her health. We talked that she didn't tell her children this. One of the major abilities that we had was during the second round of chemotherapy, she actually told her children that she had cancer and she was undergoing treatment. But her initial year and a half, two years, she was in... And in her own words, denial of what was going on. She'd come in and she wanted to get the hell out of there. Hmm. Any comment, John? Well, I think it just gives you a sense of the context. And this also came up very much, you know, when you see patients and you think about their stories. And it's a remarkable opportunity that I had today with Neil to see six people basically tell me their story and him tell their story. And it reminds you that we see our patients, you know, in snapshots when we're dealing with acute issues. But when you sit in here and think about someone's story and how this evolves and plays out, how much the context of the patient's life really impacts so many of these decisions and their approach to treatment and our approach to treating them, which, you know, on a day-to-day basis, when you're managing somebody's blood counts or their chemo doses, you don't always think of, but certainly plays a key role. And whether we think about it or just subconsciously deal with it that way, it's certainly as much as the data that we have about how to treat these diseases, the data that we have about the patient's overall situation, I think, is also such a key factor. What about bendamustine and CLL, John, and R bendamustine? Where is that fitting in right now in your sequence? Well, bendamustine is approved, certainly in CLL, and is active and is used both in the relapse setting and in the upfront setting. There have been some phase two studies looking at it as an upfront therapy, both alone and with rituximab. I think we've seen some encouraging results, and there are some comparative studies going on right now. So I certainly think it's a reasonable choice based on some of the data that we have. 
I haven't seen that many people using it as upfront, and we generally have not been using it upfront. Still some inertia with the fluterbine-based regimens, but I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, and obviously those studies will be very important, just as they have been important in follicular lymphoma. What about alemtuzumab, John? Where does that fit in your algorithm? Yeah, I think that's something that we discussed, and I know Neil had discussed that with this patient, given the 17P deletion, alemtuzumab is one of the agents that can be relatively more useful in that situation. Certainly, it is better in patients with marrow disease if your problem is marrow and blood more so than lymph nodes and bulky disease. I think with this lady, it certainly might have been at one point in time here and there, uh, might have been a useful consideration and certainly for the future might be, particularly if her counts are the issue rather than lymph nodes. Obviously, the infectious issues are not trivial with alemtuzumab and the prophylaxis involved, but it certainly is a useful drug, particularly in the 17P deleted patients. I think at this point, you know, it's been primarily used as a single agent. The sequential combinations are concurrent combinations to my mind, and we talked about this with this lady. Would you give her maintenance alemtuzumab, for instance, after the benamustine to see if that can maintain her remission given the 17P? And I think, you know, it's an interesting idea, but the data that we have, at least after FCR thus far and FR thus far, have not been tremendously impressive and have been significant with respect to toxicity. So I think in somebody like this, I probably would not give her maintenance, but I think that would be an interesting issue to study further. But so far, I think the trade-offs are not so clear. What's your experience, Neil, been with alemtuzumab in terms of side effects and infections? Yeah, I had not great experience, and we talked about this a little. So I probably have my own bias in patients I've treated have not done well. They've not tolerated it well. They've had symptoms, and some have had very, very severe cytopenias and severe infectious complications. So I deeply respect that drug and will use it only if I don't see a lot of alternatives. And again, I'm sure I've just not had a wonderful track record with it. How about you, John? And what kind of prophylaxis do you use? Well, I think we do have some more experience with it. I think that certainly it's one of those things that, you know, because particularly things like CMV reactivation and other things are there, you really have to be mindful of the prophylaxis, which, you know, obviously there's a little bit of a learning curve there, even for myself, frankly. But, you know, in these patients, you want to give them antiviral prophylaxis with, you know, usually valgencyclovir and certainly be mindful of CMV if they're developing fevers and other related symptoms. Also, usually a trimethoprim sulfur or something for pneumocystis is also part of the usual regimen, as well as fluconazole often is incorporated. So, you know, all of that certainly adds up. I think, you know, in certain people, I think it can be a very useful agent, but you do really have to be mindful of the prophylaxis. And I think, you know, when these people get fevers, you really have to have a pretty open mind as to what it could be as opposed to most of the other scenarios we're dealing with. Any interesting clinical research concepts out there, John, in terms of alemtuzumab? Well, I think the ideas, the things that have been pursued the most with alemtuzumab in CLL, I think most recently have been looking at the combinations in higher-risk patients, looking at the maintenance in higher-risk patients. And certainly, I think as we get more experience with it, 
you know, managing the infectious issues is not trivial, but is more manageable. So, you know, I think it's one of the things. We also have a lot of new drugs coming along in CLL that people are getting exciting about and maybe have a little different toxicity profile that are getting a lot of attention as well. What are some of the new agents and ideas out there for CLL? Well, beyond bendamustine, which we mentioned earlier and has been approved, we have ofatumumab that has been approved in CLL, particularly patients with fludarabine refractory disease, alemtuzumab refractory disease, or bulky disease that would not be good candidates for alemtuzumab. Those are the settings where the clinical trial was done. Some of the clinical trials were done to really demonstrate the value. It's a novel anti-CD20 antibody that is a human antibody as opposed to a chimeric antibody like rituximab. It binds to a different epitope on CD20, so it does compete with rituximab for binding, which is worth keeping in mind. You can't really give them together, but it has some reasons to think that it's better at complement activation, and so it is an agent that has activity and resistant CLL. It's being combined with a number of regimens. So, for instance, there's uh, FCO regimen where it's been plugged into the FCR combination. I'm not sure that the results are convincingly better, but I think it's an interesting combination that needs to be looked at further. So ofatumumab is certainly one agent that's being looked at in a lot of B-cell lymphomas, but most particularly CLL. I think other drugs that are particularly exciting include lenalidomide is certainly getting a lot of attention, both as a maintenance therapy in CLL as well as a single agent. And there have been a number of different studies that have been conducted as well as are ongoing, some of the randomized studies to try to define its role. But clearly, I think it's a very promising agent in CLL. We've had other agents that have gotten some attention. There are in clinical trials some novel antibodies against CLL targets that are being studied. There was an interesting presentation by a drug, Cal101. Calistoga is the company that makes it. It's a PI3 kinase inhibitor that was presented at the ASH meeting. Ian Flynn has been involved with that, as well as John Bird and Rick Furman at our institution. And that agent, interestingly, has had some very impressive responses. We have that clinical trial open, and in nodal CLL, we've seen some very nice lymph node reductions. It's an oral agent. It's a PI3 kinase inhibitor that is very well tolerated. And I think, you know, that's one of the more exciting agents that's out there in B-cell malignancies, particularly CLL. Also, the BCL2 inhibitors, Abbott in particular, has a compound that is a BCL2 inhibitor that is active in CLL and SLL. So I think there are a number of things out there which hopefully not only will be active but have pretty favorable tolerability profiles, particularly in this patient population with the infections and cytopenias, having agents that can be active without causing those problems is certainly important. So, Neil, have you used ofatumumab? I have not yet. We were just talking about this. You know, this would be somebody who I would certainly think about using it. Interesting, lenalidomide, she was offered a clinical trial looking at lenalidomide maintenance which she was not interested in. It was a placebo-controlled trial that she really wanted nothing to do with it. So, you know, we talked about maintenance strategies in her and off a clinical trial. I'm not sure there's anything that I have to offer to her currently. 